I'm sure every parent here, grandparent, you've had a moment in your life, you can't uh, say exactly when it happened, but you, you look at your child and you recognize that your child isn't a child anymore. They, they become a young adult. And you don't know exactly how that happened, when that happened, and sometimes it's, it's just as a result maybe as a growth spurt. You know, you, you, you turn around, you, just, you were just at the store to buy him some clothes two weeks ago, and now they're up to his shins already. And just, he's, he's growing up. He's becoming a young man. Maybe you look at your grocery bill. That'll tell you somebody's growing up here, okay? Maybe it's a school event. Uh, you see your child in an activity at school or, or sporting event, some extracurricular event and you just recognize not a child anymore growing up maybe it's something he or she says you, you just recognize in what he said in that moment he's not thinking like a little boy anymore she's not thinking like a little girl they're becoming young adults that's insight from a young adult and sometimes God speaks in powerful ways through children and through young people. We never, never want to be dismissive of what children say or young people say because God said that through the youths and through young children that he is going to ordain his wisdom. And sometimes little ones can say or do something that gives eternal insight and incredible, incredible impact. You know, I have here, I brought with me today this little, little note. You can't see that from where you are, I'm sure. This little note, and it was torn off from one of our bulletins over 20 years ago. And back then, also, the, the staff, we had our pictures on the bulletin back then. That was before we got all old and gray, and we didn't want our pictures on there anymore. <laughs> so that, that was finished. But we had our pictures, and coming up on 22 years ago, in March, my father passed away, and he was an active member of this church, very dearly beloved part of our church. And one morning, I don't know to this day, some child came and put this inside of my Bible. And uh, it was uh, a week or so before I actually found where he or she had tucked this in. But I have kept it as a very, very special, priceless thing to me. Nearly 22 years. Don't trust it in my old filing cabinet of my Bible anymore. I have a special place I keep it in my study. But here's what that little boy or little girl wrote and never will know until he or she's in heaven what it meant to me. But I'm going to put it on the screen in the exact grammar. Here's what he or she wrote. Dear Pastor, just in case you ever find this, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Just don't forget, even though your dad has passed away, God is still watching and your dad is watching too. And they're both smiling. <laughs> oh. 
You can't imagine how that comforted me, encouraged me, and also the insight that child had to think that I've been blessed with the favor of a father who smiled over me all his life. But imagine, in God's grace, the favor of a heavenly father who loves me in spite of myself and smiles over me and in his great grace delights over me. From the little pen of that child came a word of wisdom and insight and encouragement that lasts me throughout the years of my life. Well, I thought of that and I took it down from its special place. I brought it this morning. I shared it with you this morning because in our text today, we have a statement from a child. We have a, a few words spoken by the child, the Lord Jesus. And they are so ordinary, but they are so extraordinary. So ordinary, but so extraordinary, but they have profound meaning and impact if, with the Spirit's help, we can hear the voice of the Lord. Now, our text today, are you looking there in chapter 2? This is the only story from the childhood of Jesus. There is one story from the childhood of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's the only story from the childhood of Jesus. It's the only story for the first 30 years of his life. Now, think about that. The Bible indicates that Jesus was probably 33 or 34 when he was crucified. And for the first 30 years of his life, the only story recorded, the only thing that's noted that he ever said is in this passage. 90% of the life of Jesus is silent to us, except for this statement. Think about it. Look at verse 40. Between verse 40 and verse 41 is 12 years. Look at verse 52. Between verse 52 and verse 1 of chapter 3 is 18 years. So between verse 40 of Luke 2... And chapter 3, verse 1 of Luke is a span of 30 years. And the only thing we know of Jesus personally in those 30 years is what was read for you this morning by Fred, this passage from the Word of God. Now, this story is so ordinary. And it's also so extraordinary. Now, it's so ordinary because it's so in tune and characteristic of a Jewish family at that time. Jesus was born into a poor but godly Jewish family. Mary, his mother, Joseph, his adopted father. And they were committed followers of God. And as so, year by year, they would go to Jerusalem for the Passover. 
The Passover is an extended period of time lasting over a week. It's called Rosh Hashanah, highlighted with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Usually happens about September, late mid-September in our calendar. Now, according to the rabbis, ancient rabbis and their teachings, the first time a young man would go to Passover and into all the temple practices of the Passover was in his 12th year. And the reason he would go in his 12th year, because this was preparation for what was going to happen on his 13th year. On his 13th year, he would make this journey, be presented in the temple, and he would go through the ceremony called a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, which means son of the commandment. Through this ceremony at the age of 13, a Jewish boy would become as far as his personhood in the community of Israel, he would be considered an adult member of the community, a part as a young adult of the community of Israel. This would happen when he was 13, a bar mitzvah. The girls would happen one year earlier when they were 12 at their bat mitzvah, bat mitzvah. But in the 12th year, according to the rabbis, the young boys would go and they would approach all the ceremony, all the ritual of the temple with parents, especially with father, and would be prepared for what was going to happen the next year, that sacred moment of the bar mitzvah. Now, this is what is happening in the life of Jesus. It's a very ordinary thing. He is coming at the age of 12 with his mother and father, and evidently, this is the first time since a baby that he has come to the temple to prepare this time for his bar mitzvah. It's so ordinary. And it's also ordinary when we read the story of what happens. Uh, Jesus is there in the temple. He's involved. We're going to look more at that. He's, he's taking part in what's taking place. But there is a, a large group of relatives and family that have come down from Nazareth. And they've come to Jerusalem for this Passover. And somehow, because the young boys would be together and it would not be considered strange for extended family to be watching for the kids. It's assumed that Jesus is still part of the gathering. And they start back after the end of the festival of the Passover. And they, they continue and heading back. And guess what? After a day, they find out that Jesus is not there. Now, they've just come from the Passover, and now he's not there. And now what was this joyous celebration? <laughs> I said earlier it took place in the fall, actually springtime, excuse me for my misspeak. They're turning back, they're going back in joy, but they think, where's Jesus? They can't find him. And so they begin to search among the extended family, where's Jesus? And they find out he's not there. And so, again, it's, it's, you can imagine the attention. 
Any, any parent here ever been separated from child, not where a child is, for an extended period of time? It's frightening, scary. And so Joseph and Mary are very distressed. They go all the way back to Jerusalem. They're looking everywhere for Jesus. And then they find him in the temple. And this is where the ordinary story becomes extraordinary. It all reaches a climax, a climactic moment when Mary, speaking to him for her husband and herself, scolds Jesus, corrects him for what has happened. And Jesus responds to what his mother says. It's extraordinary. And then they leave the temple and they head back home. And what is said is extraordinary. So why is this story chosen? We have to ask ourselves. For 30 years, nothing is recorded about the life of Jesus other than this story. Why would Luke, the historian, and remember he's a historian, of all the things, choose this? Well, of course, he is led by the Holy Spirit. He is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that he is choosing to record the very thing that God wants recorded. He is led by the Spirit after he has interviewed Mary or others that knew Mary and heard the story from her to include this. And this is all that we are told for this period of 30 years. And God thinks it's so important that he puts it in his book, the Bible, and it will be a part of the word of God throughout all eternity. Why? Why? Well, it's because in this ordinary, extraordinary story, here's what we learn. Listen carefully. We learn some things about our Lord, and we learn some very important things from our Lord. We learn some things about our Lord, and we learn some things from our Lord. The Bible was written so that we could know our Lord. Right? The Bible was written so we could know the author of the book. And the Bible was written, it says, these things that were written were written for our admonition and our instruction. They were written down not just to give us information, but to encourage us and challenge us for wisdom of life. So what do we learn about our Lord from this passage? And what do we learn from our Lord? Notice, first of all, what do we learn about our Lord? We learn this, that at the age of 12, Jesus recognized his identity. He recognized his identity. Now, there's an inscrutable mystery here that we're about to speak We're about to share some things that are written down that we can't wrap our finite minds around the infinite things that are here. But we are going to do this with the help of the Holy Spirit and receive the things that we can receive. Because Jesus is an ordinary child. You must understand this. 
Jesus did not go around according to traditions that have existed, turning little wooden birds he had made into real birds, and they fly away. Jesus did not go around as a little child calling down the birds to attack his friends when he got angry. You know, there's all kinds of crazy myths like that about Jesus. No, Jesus was an ordinary child. He was like any other child, but Jesus, we all know, was an extraordinary child. He was like in, unlike any other child. Why? Because Jesus, listen carefully, he was fully human. And he at the same time was fully God. Jesus was fully human. What does that mean? Listen carefully, church. It means whatever can be said of a human being apart from sin can be said of Jesus. Whatever can be said about a human being apart from sin because he knew no sin. He did not have a sin nature because of the virgin birth. Whatever can be said of a human being can be said of Jesus because he is human. But also, whatever can be said of God can be said of Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate. He is God incarnate so that whatever can be said about God can be said about Jesus. Now, this is a mystery that is inscrutable, but it's actual and we can receive it by faith that Jesus was fully human and fully God. The, the theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis. Hypostasis means substance. That Jesus had one substance. But in his one substance, there were two complete natures. The nature of God and the nature of man. They were not intermingled so that Jesus was God inside a man or that Jesus was a man carrying God, part God, part man. No, all God, all man, God-man, one substance. <laughs> this is what the Bible teaches. He had the nature of a man apart from any sin, and he had the nature of God. So at his birth, what's this mean? When he was still in the straw, he was fully God. He was fully God when the shepherds came to gaze upon him. But at the same time that he was fully God in that manger, he was fully human. He had to learn to nurse from his mother's breast. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn to recognize people's faces. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn how to feed himself. He had to learn how to interact with other human beings. He had to learn what it meant to grow in knowledge, to grow physically, to grow spiritually. Everything that can be said of a human being can be said of Jesus. Now this is truly an inscrutable mystery. But our text today makes something very clear. What does it make clear? What's Luke trying to do? 
He is setting forth this truth that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. He's the perfect man and he's perfect God and he's going to be the perfect savior. And here we see that at the age of 12, listen carefully, church. By the time he was 12 years of age, he knew his identity. He himself, in his own thinking and understanding, recognized his identity. How do we know that? Because verse 49, notice this. Jesus, he said to them, that is his father and mother, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Note that. He said, I must be in my father's house. My father. He calls God my father. Now listen carefully. No one in the history of the world until that moment had called Almighty God my Father. No one. In the Old Testament, God was Father to Israel. But no one referred to Him as my Father. Not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Elijah, not Solomon, not David, not Moses, not Abraham. Friends as they were of God, servants as they were of God, who loved Him with all their hearts, never did they call God my Father until this 12-year-old boy referred to God my Father. No one had ever done that. And for the rest of his life, Jesus never referred to God by any other term than Father, except for one time. When was that? When he was on the cross and he had become your sin and my sin. When he had become the sacrificial substitute for our sin. And he was forsaken by God. He cried out, quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time that Jesus did not refer to God as Father. Because at that moment, he was the sin bearer on the cross. The Son, yes. But he was the sin bearer. And as the sin bearer, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what do we learn about our Lord? We learn he recognized his identity. Now, let's apply that. What do we learn from our Lord? What do we learn from our Lord here? Listen carefully, church. We learn to recognize our identity. Because Jesus only referred to God as Father. And you know what he taught all of his disciples? Call him what? Father. When you pray, pray like this. Our what? Father. 
who art in heaven. The Lord is teaching about the identity that we have. No, we are not God's image. There's only one who has been one God's exact image. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact image of God. He is the icon of God. He's the exact image. You want to know what God's like? God's like Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And he's the only one who is the very image of God. But the Bible does say, even though we are not made in the perfect image of God, and in our character, we are not the perfect image bearers, we are bearers of his image, right? Every human being is made in the image of God. The Bible says God created every human being, every person in this room and every person on the face of this earth has been created by God and they are his image bearers. He created male and female and male and female are his image bearers. Every person has worth. Why? Because every person is an image bearer of God. But when you become a Christian. That is when you trust in Jesus as your Savior. No, not only are you an image bearer of God because of your creation, but through salvation, through your recreation in Christ by the Holy Spirit's miracle of your regeneration, you are born again and now you're not just an image bearer of God. The Bible says you are a son or daughter of God. Isn't that amazing? What did John say? John said in John chapter 1, To as many as received him, to as many as received Jesus as Lord and Savior, to them he gives the privilege to be known as what? The sons and daughters of God, the children of God. Amen. Friend, that is who we are. John, again, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, said, See what manner of love the Father has showered upon us, bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Friend, why is this so important? What's so important about this application this morning? Listen carefully, because it's life's ultimate question. What is life's ultimate question? You see, if you ask the big questions, you get the big answers. And the big answers guide you in the rest of the decisions of your life. What is the big question of life? Here it is. Listen carefully. Who am I? Who am I? I have an awareness of myself. And I have an awareness of God, my creator. Who am I? This is who you are. You are an image bearer of God. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his son. You are his daughter. That is who you are. That's your identity. You see, your identity, listen carefully. Who am I? That is not answered by your earthly family. As important as that is, 
Your identity is not determined by your earthly family. Your identity is not determined by earthly fame. Your identity is not determined by earthly finances. Your identity is determined by your heavenly Father. It is the one who is not of this earth who gives you your identity on this earth. You are created in his image. He has made you for himself. Your purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are restored from the sinfulness of your heart to be a son or daughter of God. That is who you are. That's your identity. Your identity is not what happened to you in the past. Your identity is not what people say about you. Your identity is not what people think about you. Your identity is not what you think about yourself. Your identity is who God says you are. So friends, what happens? Here's what happens. We don't feel like God's image bearers. We don't feel like the sons of God. Sometimes we don't feel like the daughters of God. And guess what we start doing? We start acting according to our feelings rather than our identity in Christ. And some of you here this morning, listen carefully, church, on the first day of this new year, here is deliverance for decades from some of you. For some of you, there's decades of deliverance in what I'm about to say. You feel rejected by God. You feel like God doesn't love you. You feel like you don't have worth. But God in His Word says you are created in His image. And if you're trusting Jesus, you're His son or daughter, that's who you are. Now you've got to decide who do you believe. You can either believe yourself or you can believe God. One of you is wrong. And guess what? It's not God. You say, well, I don't feel it. Is that the way you're going to live your life? I feel sorry for you. (laughs) Feel. Because what is faith? Faith is not what you feel. Faith is what God has revealed. And you are an image bearer of God. And if your hope is in Jesus, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done, no matter who thinks what about you, you are loved by God. You're his son. You're his daughter. Now you can live that. You can live that. You see, until, until you know That's the devil's voice. Don't give the devil the stick to beat you up with. Don't let the devil lie about you. And then you say, yeah, devil, and I'll give you some more stuff. And beat me with that. Because the devil's a liar. And the world's a liar. This world system is a liar. Your identity is not found in anything of this world. It's out of this world. It's from God. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, he's 12 years old. He's my father. 
And a few years later, he's going to tell his disciples, hey, he's your father too. You know what someone as well said? You know what the difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament is? The difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament is one word, Father. You think about that. God is Father. Why is it important we know who we are? Because until you know who you are, you can't know what you ought to do. When you answer the big question, who am I? Think about it. If by the grace and mercy of God, you will walk out of this building today. And by the grace and help of God, from this day, you will say, I am an image bearer of God by his creation. And all praise to Jesus. I am a child of God by his salvation. If that dawns on you, you're going to live a really different kind of life. Why? Because you know who you are. And when you know who you are, then you begin to know how you ought to live. Jesus recognized his identity. And because he recognized his identity, what else did Jesus do? Here's what we learned about our Lord. He reverenced his priorities. He reverenced his priorities. Now again, Jesus is how old? Twelve. And notice what has captured his heart. He's twelve years old. He's 12 years old. Just old enough for middle school. And already his heart has been captured. His affections have been captured by what? Number one, the word of God. He loves the word of God. Now he's a human being. How did he learn the word of God? He learned the word of God from his mother, first of all, as she shared the sayings of the Bible, and she sang the words of the Bible. We know Mary knew the Bible, and she could sing the Bible. We know that already, right? He learned the Bible from Mary, his mother. And then he learns insights and integrity from his father, Joseph, because Joseph is a good man. He's a man of character. He's a man of God. And he teaches his little boy the things of God. Jesus learned the word of God from his mother and his father. Jesus learned the word of God from his, listen carefully, Sabbath school teacher. The rabbi in the synagogue would gather the children and teach the children. And he would regularly go to Sabbath school at the synagogue. And he learned about God and his word through the Sabbath school, and the teachers. And now here he is at the age of 12. He's come to Jerusalem, and now he's enrolled himself in Temple University. All right? 
He's in Temple University because the temple, listen carefully, the temple was not just a place of worship. It was a place of education. It was the greatest university in all of Jewish life. The greatest rabbis, the greatest scholars came to Jerusalem and in the courts around the temple, they taught the word of God. And the brightest minds were chosen to go and to be taught the word of God in temple university. And Jesus comes to the temple. He sees a class being taught. He listens in and decides to audit it. And then he sits down. And he's enraptured by the things he's learning. He, this is insights he's never had from the Bible before. And he begins to ask questions of the scholars. Verse 46 says, he was listening to the teachers, asking them questions. <laughs> and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Listen, teachers. Hey, any teachers here, Sunday school, or teach your children at home, or teach in a public school or Christian school, talk about having a star student? <laughs> Think about it. As an adolescent, he wants to know and understand the Word of God. He loved the Word of God. He loved the worship of God. That was his priority. He's there in the temple. He's a passionate worshiper. Jesus was a worshiper. What can be said of any human being can be said of Jesus. He was a worshiper of God. He loved God. He didn't love God just for what he learned about him, he loved God and worshiped God for who he was. Who God is. Verse 49, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now this week, I've meditated on this. Because maybe you're like me, it's always troubled me. How could Jesus spend three days away from his mom and dad? I mean, how, how's this? How could you not know it's been three days? Thought about this. Because when his mother comes and she rebukes him, she gently rebukes him. And what he says is what we just read in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? He's not making an excuse. He, he's not disrespectful. He's not pre-adolescent with an attitude. He, he's being sincere. Here's what came to my mind this week. If it is true that in his 12th year, this is his first time to enter into all the activities of the temple. This is the closest he's felt to home in 12 years. Where did he come from? Glory. Where did he come from? A place where God dwells. Where he is praised and worshipped continually. 
And Jesus walks into the temple and the priests around the walls are singing to the Lord. People are on their faces praying to God. The temple is lit up in its beauty at night. He sees the sacrifices. He sees the giving. And all of it just draws him and draws him and draws him to who he is. He came from the glory. And on earth, this is the closest place to home he's ever been. Home for him is not Nazareth. Really, home for him is heaven. And he feels the presence of his father. And he's just oblivious to time. That's what we learn about our Lord. What do we learn from our Lord? And I close with this. But don't close your Bibles. Most of all, don't close your mind. We learn about our own personal priorities. What is the priority of the Word of God in my life? How important is God's word to me? How important is the worship of God with the people of God to me? You see, friend, I don't say that for any kind of guilt upon you at all. But I would challenge you to ask the one who loves you most of all, your heavenly Father, right? Amen. Ask him, Father, would you just show me how important is your word to me? Would you just show me, Father, how important my worship to you privately and publicly is. And Lord, would you, Father, would you just help me? My priorities need to change. Do you think God wouldn't hear a prayer like that? What about your family priorities? Husband and wife, how important is the word of God to your relationship? How often, husband and wife, do you ever talk about what God is showing you from his word? What, what questions do you ever ask each other? How often do you pray together? Mom and dad, how important is God's word when you're with your children? Do you have, do you have time when you talk to them about the word of God? Do you ask them questions about what they learned at church? You know what we say? We're so busy. So busy. And my answer to that statement is a question. Listen. Doing what? We all have 168 hours in our week. Jesus had 168 in his. Every person has 168. It's called life. 
What is the priority? Where is the word of God in the worship of God in our time? When we are too busy for the worship of God, when we're too busy for the word of God, friends, that is bad business. That's bad busyness. We're all busy. But when we're too busy for the things of this world that we don't take time for the things of eternity, we're too busy. Moms and dads, it's busy raising children. I know a little bit about that. And it's busy being a young person. I remember I was busy, busy, busy with football, busy with basketball, busy with baseball, just went from one sport to the other, busy mowing yards, busy working at the supermarket, busy in the marching band, busy in the concert band, and then I'm dating Susan, who's the busiest teenager I've ever met in my life. She, she was a member of everything. But my mom and dad had priorities. And yes, I played basketball, and I played football, and I played baseball, and I played that trumpet, and I marched in the band, and I did all those things. But mom and dad made sure we had family time and we had church time. We had family time. We sat down, we had meals together, we shared together, we talked together, Relatives came over. We experienced life together. And we had church time. And I want to tell you, there were Sunday mornings. I was so dog-tired from the game the night before. So beat up and battered. I don't, and how many times my mom jerked those covers off me and would say something very loving like this. Young man, if you can run up and down that court like a fool... If you can get your head beat in out there on the field, if you can run all over those bases, you can get out of bed and go to church. Something real tender like that. <laughs> I'm done. I, but I have to tell you this. One night, we played Lafayette, 90 miles north of my town, Newcastle. Basketball game, arch rival. We played our hearts out. As I recall, we won the game. We staggered onto that bus. We were so tired. While we were playing in there, the bus driver decided he needed a little something-something. So he walked down the street to the little bar and got him a little something-something. Nobody knew about it. Climbs up, starts driving us home. After a couple hours, I was bouncing around dead. We're all dead to sleep. I looked up and I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Illinois. <laughs> Welcome to Illinois. We're not from Illinois. <laughs> I woke the coach up. You don't want to know what the coach told that driver. Put him in the front seat. Coach started driving. Oh, I remember that. We got home about 2.30 or 3 in the morning, Sunday morning. And guess what happened that morning? <laughs> My blessed mom <laughs> said, get up. We're going to church, Sam Lewis. 
Sam Lewis, get up. You say, Sam, didn't that make you bitter and frustrated? Didn't you get frustrated and bitter over that? Yeah, I got so bitter I decided to become a pastor. Just never have, never, never have gotten over it. I've been, all, I've been against church ever since. You, you can turn your kids off church, you know that? Make them go to church. Or you just turn them off. Yeah. I thank God for mom and dad who didn't believe that. Because one night, that old hillbilly preacher sharing the gospel gave the gospel. And this 18-year-old athlete came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And February 12, 1974, that Sunday night, couldn't sleep until he gave his heart to Jesus. I thank God. I thank God for a mom and dad had priorities like that. Well, I've got a resolution. You know what my New Year's resolution was? <laughs> Preach shorter sermons. <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing so good. Doug's going to come and we're going to sing. And we're, but I want you to notice one thing. Jesus also recognized and respected authority. Write that down and look it up. This is staggering. Who did he say he was? He's my father. God's my father. Verse 51. He went home with his mom and dad and was submissive to them. There's no perfect parents, young people. And there's been only one perfect person. But that perfect son of God put himself under imperfect parents. And he respected their authority. God has ordained authority. And the son of God put himself under God-ordained authority. The authority of mom and dad. The authority of government. God's given us authority. Authority of the local church to guide us and help us to walk out a life of righteousness. The authority of the Word of God. Why does God put us under authority? For slavery? No. For what? Freedom. Freedom. Because, listen, Father knows best. Amen. Father knows best. And we need Jesus every hour. Let's stand.